Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We are going through the book of Romans and the argument works something like this. We are all by nature under the wrath of God because of our sin and our sinful nature. We're under the guilt and condemnation of sin. We're under the power of sin. But God, in His grace, has an answer. And for the guilt of our sin, He justifies us. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons us of all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the sake of Christ's righteousness, His life and death on our behalf. And that received by faith alone from us. And so that justification is how you have become righteous in God's sight if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus. And in Romans 5, at least the first few verses, Paul wants you to understand what that justification means, the implications of it. How you stand before God. You stand with peace with God. You stand with access to God. You stand with the grace of God that is yours. You have access to it. You stand with hope that God is at work in your life now and hope in the future that you will always be with God. And I want to explore just a little more as we come to the table this morning to, to commune with God. What does that mean? That we can commune with God. It means that you and I are reconciled to Him. That's the language of Scripture, that, that we are reconciled to God. Let, let's uh, read the Scriptures. Actually, let's pray first. And then we'll read the Scriptures about God's reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, if, as You have promised in Your Word, we can be reconciled to You. It means we can come to You. We can approach You. We can trust that our relationship is restored that You no longer hold anything against us, that our condemnation has been erased, that our forgiveness and that the righteousness with which You have clothed us in Christ is the most significant reality to us. That it's bigger than our rebellion, that it's bigger than our failures, that Your grace abounds more than our sin. And if that's true, then we can come to You with confidence, we can draw near to You as we have just sung based on the five bleeding wounds of Christ that He is our surety, our promise, our guarantee to be right with You forever. Help us see that in the Scriptures, to believe it and to understand it. Help us take the words You have inspired through Paul the Apostle, preserved for thousands of years that we might now read them today and by Your Spirit, hide them in our heart that we might have the courage of confident faith humbly to draw near to You and trust Your love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, 
at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So therefore, we have now been justified uh, by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is God's Word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. In 1905, Japan invaded Korea and conquered and established an occupying force, martial law, and the soldier police kind of kept a tight rule on things. It was common in history when a people gets conquered that the conquering army will forbid the current religion of the region. After all, religion tends to unite people, and they didn't want people united over a cause like that to feel those things. And in Korea, it was a fairly strongly Christian group, a lot of churches. And so the Japanese forbid the meeting of Christians to worship. Of course, uh, they still tried. They met in house churches and, and many spokesmen and, and Christian leaders were arrested, sent to concentration camps, punished because of their faith. Yet a few remained and they had the boldness on occasions to approach their oppressors and ask, can we meet for worship? One local pastor just outside of Seoul had pestered and pleaded and begged sufficiently that he, he wore down the local Japanese police chief. Take the chains off our church door, let us gather. And he said, one time, I will permit it. The news began to spread, and the entire community of Christians that had been worshiping there showed up. But not just them, those from surrounding areas who would love to have gathered a church and wanted to sing together and hear the body gathered, all came for worship this one time they were permitted. They all gathered in there, the place was absolutely packed. And they began to sing and sing, and the joy was magnificent. It would have been hard to be there and not to join in them with great joy. The soldiers stood outside and certainly overheard the songs and toward what might have been, the, well, who knows whether this was the end of the service or not, but they were singing. They were singing, Nearer my God to Thee, when the soldiers put the chains back on the doors and locked it began to pour kerosene on the church and light it. The old wood took the flames and began to spread across the building. The people began to panic. Some tried to climb out the windows and machine gun fire kept them in. The place began to go up into smoke. You could begin to hear the terror and the cries and the panic inside the building. And the pastor told the pianist to start playing again. They began to sing another hymn in the midst of the burning building. They sang a, a version of Alas and Did My Savior Bleed? Did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a sinner as I? They began to sing it. Now the children were still panicking. But the joy came back to the adults who were singing. 
And it was really kind of a, a beautiful and scandalous and terrible moment. You can imagine the, the smoke beginning to burn their eyes. Probably most of the congregation died from smoke inhalation long before the fire ever got there, but the building collapsed. And if there were any survivors before that, there weren't after. The entire community, not those who, who were just going to that church, but the entire community developed such a bitter hatred toward the Japanese that they passed it from generation to generation. There's a, a sort of corporate sense of guilt and, and responsibility that an Eastern person feels that a, uh, an American individualist doesn't feel quite so much. But it just passed from generation to generation. And 66 years later, that bitterness was still there. 1971... Japan's changed dramatically. It's not the same country it was before. It's not the aggressor. In fact, after World War II, they weren't allowed to, field them, to, to, to raise up an army at all. So they were dependent on the rest of the world to protect them. In 1971, some Japanese were touring in Korea, and among them were a couple of Christian pastors. And as they went through this region near Seoul, they came across a monument that commemorated the massacre. And they read what had happened. And they felt that communal corporate guilt of their forefathers. Just because they were Japanese, and that sounds foreign to us, but it's the way they think. And in the Bible, that's not too far from the way God wants us to think sometimes. And in their shame, they went home, and they urged their congregations to sacrificially give, and they raised 20, no, sorry, 10 million yen which was about $25,000 in 1971, and they sent the money back to have a church rebuilt near that location. And it was rebuilt. And when the time came to dedicate the, the church, that Japanese delegation was invited over to come and worship with the Koreans. And it, it, you would think that's going to be a great and joyous occasion, but it turned out to be really awkward, really painful, because that bitterness was still felt by the Koreans. And while they sang hymns of reconciliation to God, they had bitterness between them. During the service, they gave thanks and recognized the generosity, but it felt like a formality. They went through the list of names of those who had been killed, and, and they, they read their names in memory, and each one heightened that sense of, of distance between the two peoples. It felt like two congregations that didn't like each other worshiping in the same building. It was difficult and painful and really awkward. And uh, someone had thought about the last two songs that had been sung in that previous church, and they had them as part of the worship order. And they got to the end, and they began to sing, Nearer my God to Thee, together, while still disliking each other. And the one who tells this story, wrote it in a, a book, says that the normally stoic Japanese began to weep. As they sang the next song, the, the same version of Alas, Did My Savior Bleed, the Japanese broke down, and they went over, some of them, to other Koreans and said, please forgive us, please forgive us. They began to bed, tears rolling down. And you must, it must have been the most awkward moment as the Koreans stared ahead and sang their songs holding that bitterness. And they begged. And they stood there until one Korean 
turned and embraced the Japanese brother. It was like the floodgates opened. Two peoples gathered together in the middle of the church and held and embraced each other and wept together. And they finished the song holding hands spontaneously. The hymn ends, uh, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. This is all that I can do. They gave themselves to each other in a moment of reconciliation. And intuitively, you all like that story. It's a great story. We love stories of reconciliation. We love to hear of long-lost, estranged brothers who come back together. A parent and children who had something between them and they find a way to get over it. We love stories of reconciliation because they reflect the Gospel. It is one of the major themes in all of Scripture that God reconciles Himself to sinners. And He does it because He sets His love on them. I want you to see how this works. God sets His love on you while you are weak, verse 6. While you are still weak or, or powerless or, or spiritually unable to do something to get God's favor back, God sets His love on you then. That Christ died for the ungodly. That while we were still sinners, not just that we committed some sins, we're still that, but while we were still utterly opposed to God, God loved you. That we were reconciled to Him while we were enemies. I want you to hear the powerful language that Paul is using. He says, God set His love on you when the most fundamental commitment of your heart was opposition to God. While you were deeply, deeply opposed to God. When you could give, you, you could give up your politics, you, you could give up your family, you could give up all kinds of things before you would give up this opposition to God. It was the most fundamental commitment of your heart. While you were opposed to God, God set His love on you. It's an initiating love. He starts this, not you. You know, this is why almost all of our reconciliation stories are really pale comparisons of God's reconciliation. Here's how reconciliation normally works. Usually it's two parties that are wrong and one party admits itself to be wrong and comes humbly to the other. Or, in the rare occasions, one party is guilty. Before reconciliation will almost ever happen, the guilty party has to come and ask for forgiveness. It was the Japanese who had to initiate the reconciliation. They had to be generous. They had to come and beg for forgiveness. It's almost always the guilty party finally becoming humble and making themselves vulnerable and approaching someone who might or might reject, might not reject them. Not sure what will happen, but in coming and admitting their failure and hoping for reconciliation. That's the way it works in our relationships. But not God. God takes the first step. God sets His love on you while you are opposed to Him. While you are sinners and angry and at enmity with Him. He says, I start. I'll break down the barrier. And you see, it's very different. If you 
have no, know someone who's against you, you go to them and hope they'll receive you. God says, look, I already love you. You know if you come to me, I'll receive you. Here's what this means. If you feel the guilt of sin, if you feel your need of God's love, God says, don't clean up first. Come right now. Don't try to put together a little resume where you can say, okay, God, I know I need some help, but here are some things I have to offer. He says, don't worry about that. Don't put together a resume. Don't clean yourself up. Don't try to do some penance ahead of time to make yourself fit to come to Him. God already set your love, His love on you. He's already made the way. He will receive you. Come. Come as you are today. Now, here's the real genius of this argument. Paul says, people won't die even for good people, though occasionally someone for a good person might die. If someone's really valuable, they might be willing to risk their life for them. But God loved you while you were still sinners, while you were still opposed to Him, and He reconciled you to Himself when there was nothing about you that was lovely. Now, now there is at least something, if you are trusting in Christ. There is at least something that God has put in you that is toward God. Remember, your most fundamental commitment was of opposition to God. Now there's something there that says, I want God as He is. I want His love for me. I want to trust Him. I want to come to Him. I want to depend on Him. I, I want God in my life. And for most of you, no, for all of us, without exception, it's all mixed and tangled and messed up. One minute, I want God and I want to trust in Him. And the next minute, I want to commend myself because look how religious I'm being. Look how good I'm being. And, and, and I keep going back and forth between those. Oh, God, save me. You alone. I trust in nothing else. Oh, wait, but I do trust in this other thing. And I keep bringing the, that mixed heart and mixed motives. But there's at least something there that God has put there. And, and, and God is at work in you sanctifying that, growing that, making it bigger, more intense in your life. And so you and I, we feel like I've got all these problems and, 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 and I'm afraid God's going to get tired of me. Paul's argument is this. If God loved you when there was nothing about you to love, when He has put tiny pieces and pictures of His Son in you, won't He love that? When you see tiny, even if it's small, elements of Christ's likeness growing in you, God will love that. God will delight in that. God will still love you. If He loved you when there was nothing at all, He will love you every step of the way until you look like Jesus. That's Paul's argument. Yesterday I was at a, a wedding in Montgomery, Alabama. And the, the couple wrote their own vows. And she started her vows by saying, Ethan, you are the man of my dreams. And she went on talking about their relationship and, and the commitment she was making. And, and she ended it by saying this, 60 years from now, we'll still have the same love we have for each other today. And you know, that's a, that's, that's a good idea. But what she was saying in that vow was saying, in distinction from sort of the bulk of marriages that you see, 
where you love each other the most on the day you're married, and from then on it sort of settles into some kind of maintenance mode. We're not going to be like that, she was saying. We're going to have the same intensity of love and passion in 60 years. And I hope they do. But I want you to see that God's relationship to you isn't like that. God's relationship to you is, I loved you when there was nothing. And I will love you intensely all the way to the end. God's relationship isn't like what we think of with marriage. Sort of the idea that it's, it's lots of passion to get you started and then it settles off. God says, we had nothing and I loved you then. And now that love starts to arise in your heart, I'm going to grow it and inflame it and your heart's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and I will love all of it all the way through. You are reconciled to God and so you have the life of Christ in you and God loves it. In Isaiah and in Matthew, there's a, an interesting verse. It says that, that Jesus Christ would not break a bruised reed or to quench a faintly burning wick. You know, the candle where the wick's really small and it puts out a tiny bit of light, but it's kind of smoking because it's so small. It's barely got any strength to burn. Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan, wrote a book, an, a very good book, on, that, on, that, on those verses. And in it, here's his thought. Here's the basic idea. That whatever is in you that is Christ-like at all, anything in you that is toward God, God put it there. And even if it's weak, even if it's barely there, He loves it. And Paul says the same thing. If God loved you when there was nothing, now that you want to come to eat with Him, now that you want to fellowship with Him, you are reconciled to God. Trust His salvation. Trust that God says to His people, come and experience. Rejoice. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the goal. This is the end. That you would rejoice in the God who has reconciled you because He loves you. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we hear Your invitation to come and fellowship with You, to commune with You, and we pray that You would uh, give us the faith to trust it, that we could enjoy Your love, that we could rejoice in Your love, that we could take comfort from Your love that was for us when there was nothing. And if You have put Christ's likeness in us, all the more will Your love sustain us and grow us until we are like Christ. Your love is on us forever, poured out into our hearts, and it's given us a relationship with you. Our estrangement is over. Our enmity is crushed. Our opposition to you is, is ended. And now we come to commune with you and fellowship with you at your table. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take your hymnals, and as we prepare to come to God's table, turn to hymn 254.